So he begins to give his speech. Verse 22. So Paul stood before the Aragapis, and that makes it clear, too, we're talking about a people, not a place. I mean, you could stand before a hill, but it seems more like we were talking about the council, especially when people. And he says, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For as I went around and observed closely your objects of worship, I even found an altar with its inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. From one man he came, made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth, determining the set times and the fixed limits of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move about and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are of his offspring, so since we are God's offspring, we should not think the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human skill and imagination. Therefore, although God has overlooked such times of ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world, and righteousness by man, whom he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. Notice that Paul's message to them is very different from every message that we've ever heard that them give to the Jews, but had very similar elements and themes in it. Because the gospel doesn't change at its core, even though you might approach it in a different way with different groups. So with the Jews, every time he went to reason with them, he immediately went to their most sacred thing, the scriptures, the prophets. And he began to show them how Christ fulfills them. And he developed themes like God is sovereign over all things and put his plan into execution and carried it out into Jesus. He developed ideas with the Jews that nothing that you build can contain God, that God is beyond this, and that we worship him through our spirit and bodies, not through materialistic things. And then he also developed the fact that we're all connected to God as his image, as his people, Jew and Gentile both. And then he ultimately always ended on the resurrection of Christ. And these are the same themes. He talks about how we all have a common ancestor as Greeks and Gentiles together. That we, you can't build temples to contain gods. Wouldn't you want God to be bigger and better than something that can house them in a temple? And he talked about the commonality that they had and the offspring. And then he led, ultimately led into the resurrection. Yet, where he started with their most sacred thing with the Jews, the scripture, he starts with their most sacred thing, the gods and the idols and the temples. Now, yes, the temple is sacred to the Jews, but only in Jerusalem. Once you get beyond that, yes, other Jews believe the temple is important, but they never can go there because it's too expensive, so the temple kind of becomes out of sight, out of mind, therefore out of prominence and your importance in your life. He starts with this. So he looks around and he says, I can see that you're really religious. I am too. Rather than starting with like, 
I can't believe that you believe that. Do you actually believe there's no God? That's not true. You believe that Allah is like distant. That's not true. You believe that the gods are in and everything and every. That's not true. He doesn't start. That's where we tend to start. We often tend to start with where you're wrong and why we disagree with you. That's why we're always portrayed as bigots and narrow-minded. And then when we say this is wrong and sinful, which we have every right and should say, it's already the icing on top of an already you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And it doesn't go over well. But Paul starts with what they have in common. You're really religious. You, religion is very important to you. You've displayed it everywhere. It's really important to me too. We have that in common. Look, I noticed that you have a statue marked to the unknown God. I worship a God that is unknown to you. We, we have that in common. And that's where he begins to start with their commonalities. You believe, you have a, he quotes their poets. He's not afraid of knowing the literature of the pagan world because it better connects to them and knows what they're thinking so that you don't waste your time talking about things with people that they don't even believe in because you don't even know what they believe in. So he quotes their poets and says, we're all offspring of the gods and the, the things. Yes, I believe that too. And he starts with all these commonalities to get them. And very rarely did he ever say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And even when he did, he came in in the backward doors like you're groping around in blindness. There's a judgment is coming, but you don't have to experience that anymore. Paul starts with what is common, just like when he goes to the Jews. He doesn't say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. He says, look, the scriptures. I believe in the Messiah. You believe in the Messiah. You believe in the scriptures. I believe in the scriptures. We believe this. Let me help you connect what you already believe and know. It's only in the very beginning, at the heart of Jerusalem, that Peter or Stephen really truly get in their face and say, you killed Jesus. But that's because their hands were directly responsible for it. Beyond those two speeches, they'll just say at the very end, and the Jews killed him, but God raised him from the dead. It's not a pointy finger anymore. Most of the time, these speeches are talking with what they have in common. That's where they start. This is how the gospel should be presented. Okay, You believe family is important? I believe family is important. A lot of times I'll start with, like, who do you think Jesus is? And they'll be like, well, I think he's a great teacher. It's like, I totally agree with that. He is a great teacher. I think he probably did miracles and stuff. I agree with that too. Like, that's a good starting point, right? And then it's easier to say, and you know what's even cooler? And then you go in with the differences. Rather, but what you got wrong was, that, that's, and there's a, don't get me wrong, there's a time and a place. But usually the time and the place is when the Holy Spirit has said, go there. Because they know the person well. Paul starts here. There's actually, you can see in the museum, there's this, rectangular stone pillar that stands up and it says to the unknown God. There's no head on it. There's all these pillars in Athens and a lot of times they would just have heads on them. And, and there's this one here. There are several of these. There are three possible reasons that they would have an altar to the unknown God. We don't know exactly why. First possible reason is that the altars were frequently reused and rededicated, especially after a natural disaster war. If any altar was found partially destroyed, the original name was lost, then it could be rededicated to an unknown or unnamed God. So it wasn't uncommon with lots of wars, lots of earthquakes of this part of the world, that statues could fall off, 
The heads couldn't be knocked off. They roll around. They don't know what head belongs with what podium. They have so many gods that they're like, I don't know. I can't keep them all straight, right? That's why we made altars and put podiums and put names on them so we don't have to. Like, it's like um, Sean Connery and Indiana Jones' dad in um, Last Crusade. Like, I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember it. Okay, so this is what they're doing. So, or they could have been eroded away in some kind of like an underwater flooding, like, right? And then so we can't just destroy the God idol. We can't just get rid of it. Like, we'll offend the God. So it's better just to set it up and say to an unknown God. Like, we're still going to worship you. We're still going to acknowledge you. So don't get mad at us and ruin our lives. But we couldn't do anything about this. So that's a possibility. The second possibility is there's evidence that the God-fearers living in places like Athens outside of Israel could have erected an altar to the God of the Jews with the inscription to the unknown God. It could be that many Greeks who are beginning to embrace the, 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 the God of the Bible said, well, we want a God here. And you could actually get, um, you could, um, get permits and, and, and argue and submit a request for your own idol and, and to being put in Athens and you could get approved and make your arguments and defense and put it there and they put to the unknown God. Um, a God that they did not really maybe fully understood that Yahweh was his name because the Jews didn't, they refused to pronounce the name Yahweh because they believed the Greeks would abuse it, misuse it, which they would. And so they're like, I don't know what his name is, but I know he's unique and different. I follow him and I want an, a, a thing for him as well. And because they're mixing Greek and Judaism and they're so far from Israel, they may have not fully comprehended that that's actually a violation of the Ten Commandments. Um, but they were doing the best that they could with what they had because that's the culture they're from. They wanted an altar there. Third, it could be that an altar to a God that they knew existed, yet did not know his name. This would avoid the misnaming of the God that would then bring wrath upon the people. So it could be that they knew that this God existed, or it could be possible that they're saying maybe there's a God that does exist that we've forgotten or don't know about. And in some of the mystery religions believe that there was a universal God spirit that was over all of creation, that was above all the other gods, and that we only could have connection with the individual gods. So there's a possibility it could be that god. Um, if you took mystery religions with me, um, this is an unknowable, impersonal god that's over all things, and everything comes out of it, and will eventually go back into it, uh, like a pantheistic idea. Maybe it could be the, that. The point is that Paul started with what they had in common, and then moved into there to connect to Christianity. And so basically what he's saying is, I know who that God is. Now he's either pointing to it and saying, I know the name of that God, that Jewish Greek people got a permit in order to set up there. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he's the only God that died and rose for you. Or it could be, I know who that unknown God is that is above all the other gods that you don't know his name and you don't think he's knowable. And so you've built an unknown, unmarked statue to him to worship, to cover all the bases. But he has made himself known through Jesus Christ. And his name is Yahweh. And Jesus is his son. Either way, he's starting with what they have in common. And he's pointing to the fact, you have one there. And you worship him. I worship it too. But it's way beyond that. And then rather than say, but Paul, that's idolatry. It's a graven image, right? 
Then Paul immediately goes into and says, but nothing in creation can contain this God. There's no idol that can contain him. There's no idol that can accurately reflect the absolute fullness and the complexity and the multifacetedness of this God. And there's no temple that can contain him. And then he immediately moves beyond the idol. You know what's really cool about me knowing that God? He's beyond anything that you can build. That's what's really cool. He starts with what they have in common, and then he blows their mind and goes beyond it. Now, is everybody's mind blown? No. But if they were really seeking out God, would it be blown? Yes. And that's what he begins to preach. So what Paul is saying is, I'm not introducing a new God. I'm not a babbler. You already have it right here in your buffet. It's already been there for all these years. I'm just now revealing to who he is because he's made himself known in the scriptures, which he doesn't mention here, but then in his son, Jesus Christ. And so he says, I proclaim this to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. This is the Lord of the heaven and earth. Now, they, unless they were steeply immersed in mystery religions, they would have no concept of a God that it was over the heavens, the sky, and the earth, and the sea all at once. They believe that their gods were limited to just certain things. And so he goes on and says, you cannot contain in the human temples. This is exactly like Peter's speech to the Jews and Stephen's speech to the Jews. You cannot contain this God in any kind of a temple. You cannot... Creation is his. He created all of creation. Therefore, there's nothing in creation that can contain him. See, if you worship a God that is only the God of the land or only the God of the sea, then it's feasible that you can create something that can contain it because this God is a limited, finite being. But if this is the God who created all of the universe and all of creation, then what can you possibly create on this dinky little planet in the giant universe that would contain the God that's outside and beyond it and created everything and holds in the palm of his hand? That's the point that Paul is making. This is a God that goes beyond anything that you possibly could have ever imagined. And then he says all humans came from this God. Humans are not just an afterthought that just randomly popped up because the gods were like, Distracted, doing something or accidentally created them or had to create them in order to have slaves. That you are the intentional creation of this God. And that we all come from a common ancestor. So there really is no difference between Jews and Greeks. We all have a common ancestor. And this God is directly over us, which is way cooler than worshiping the God of the sea or the God of the wisdom or the God of the sun. This is the God of us, who also is the God of everything. So of all the things that he could be the God of and ruling over, he chose us. This is the whole point when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God is the God of everything. Why didn't he say I'm the God of the Son? So he could relate to the pagans. I'm the God of this. I mean, he could. He has every right. He is the God of all that. But what he chooses to make himself known as is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because none of the pagans ever believed that the gods cared about humans enough to even say that. There was no God dedicated to humans. And so what God is saying is, I am dedicated to humans. And relationships and covenants are more important to me than anything else. Even more important than the sun or the sea, like these pagans think. And that's where Paul goes. Paul goes to the character of Yahweh and says, you are the focus of creation. Your pagan gods don't care about you. If you accidentally bump them into them in the hallway, they will beat you with an inch of your life and then send you into this tormented afterlife. But this God, 
is a God of people. And He cares about you. He is the one who determined where you're going to be born and where you're going to be placed. He has revealed Himself in all of creation, but He has not been fully, completely revealed like He could be to you. And this is why you've been groping around in the darkness, trying to figure out who God is. And you understood a little bit of Him being this powerful nature God, so you built an idol to Poseidon and an idol to Zeus. He is in charge of the storm. He is powerful. And you knew that there was something unknown about Him, so you built this unknown statue. These are all clues that God is giving you. You have done a good job piecing things together or, or grabbing all the puzzle pieces to be more accurate. You've done a good job. You've been groping around the darkness, right? But the darkness is now over. The light has come. And you can now know the puzzle fully put together. For we live and move about and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are offspring. So since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the deity like a gold or silver or stone. So then he goes to the next connection. If we are the creation of God and we are flesh and blood, then why would you think that God is a gold or silver? See what he's doing? He's now getting to the value of the body. The value of the body. He's dealing with reason. He's making really good rational arguments to appease the Stoics. He's proving that there is a God out there of all everything, the Stoics. But he's also appeasing the Epicureans because he's dealing with pleasure. He's dealing with the contentment of life and meaning and with the things that you can control, with the things that you can know, the things that have been revealed to you. And he's dealing with the misunderstanding that the body is not important and it doesn't need to be resurrected. And he says, but you are the creation of this God. And if you are the creation of God, and this God is powerful and beyond you, then that means that he is not merely just a stone or silver or gold, an idol. And if he's not that, then he's beyond that. And if he created you and gave you life, then what he created also has value. Therefore, your spirit and your body has value. Because not only is he giving value to the body so that they will see not only what the resurrection is, but how important and valuable the resurrection is. That's where he's getting. This is a rational argument. And he hasn't even used scripture yet. He's used ideas and principles and truths taught in the scriptures but he's woven it into their philosophies, their worldviews, and he's discarded, without even talking about it, the things that are false, and pulled out the things that are accurate. You don't have to say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. You just leave it behind. You go into all the truths and all the lies in the room, and you go over here and you pick up this truth, and you pick up this truth, and you pick up this truth, and then you move the class away from the mess of all the lies that are left behind, and then you start piecing the truths together. And what you have is a complete puzzle. You don't have to be like, this is the wrong puzzle piece, that's the wrong puzzle piece. That's, you just pick up the right puzzle pieces, move to a different place, put it all together, and say, there you go. These are all your puzzle pieces that you came and discovered on your own. All I did was put it together for you. That's what Paul's doing. He's just discarding the lies by just not talking about it. 
and moving on. Now, if they convert, then yes, he will probably head, hit the lies head on. There is great benefit to, he used to think this, but it's really that. That's actually very beneficial in helping people move beyond the lies. But in the initial stage, you just excite them with the truth and get them to, to being interested in it. And then when they say, I want more, then you can say, you used to believe this, but that's not right. It's actually this. Because they already are they're already interested. This is Paul as a great teacher being led by the Holy Spirit. And so then he goes on, he says, but don't worry. You're not under the wrath of God in a truly deep, vengeful way. Because God gets that you're ignorant. He gets that you're groping around in the darkness. He's not an unrational, irrational, unsympathetic God. But now he has overlooked all your ignorance. But now he commands all of you to repent. Because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. But now, now that the puzzle has been put together in front of you, it is Jesus. And he has come. And he has made himself known. And now you are no longer in the darkness. Now you're going to be held accountable. But you, unlike with the pagan gods, can escape the judgment because of the resurrection of this man. The judge that is going to judge you is also the one who died and rose to save you. Why would you not want to be placed in the hands of that kind of a judge? Do you see what he's done here? Same gospel message. Same puzzle pieces. Just pulled and arranged in a different way but ultimately it all comes back together for the face of Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. The two main ideas here are first, that there is one creator God over all the universe and its contents. And second, that this God does not dwell in shrines made by human hands. Paul's conclusion, therefore, is that their idolatry is illogical. He doesn't say evil, wrong, bad people. He says it's irrational. Because remember the Epicureans and Stoics don't believe that there's an evil. The only evil is fear of death and fear of pain. Why would you say something is evil, evil, evil if they don't even believe in evil? What he says is it's not logical. He knows his audience so well. With the Jews, he says this is evil, this is wrong because they have a highly developed sense of morality from the Mosaic Law. But for the, degree, the Stoics and the Epicureans, it says it's illogical. He's gone all Vulcan on them and made that argument in a very logical, computed kind of way. The divine nature is essentially spiritual rather than material, but it created a material thing and gave great value to it. And so God is now here to reveal himself to you. Tanhill says this, Paul appeals to the relation of creator and creature and to God as universal judge in order to provide a foundation for the gospel that can address the whole humanity. The internal impulse for this speech, internal to the implied author's perspective, comes from the need to speak of all humanity sharing an essentially similar relation to God as a basis for inclusive gospel. A gospel commensurate, 
with the inclusive saving purpose of God announced in the Luke. See, one thing that Paul did not do is that we're all offspring of God. We're all created by God. Why did he not do the Jews? Because the Jews thought, we are chosen, and we are special, and we are saved, and not those Gentiles. So what Paul does is, your Savior has come. Your prophets have been fulfilled. Your Mosaic law is now being fulfilled out in Jesus. And then once they accept that, he can say, you used to think that it was just for you, but now it's for the Gentiles. With the Greeks, he starts with their common nature. Because they don't have this view that there's a certain group of people that are not saved. Everybody is saved. Or maybe they're not, that God's getting angry at you. But we're on the same boat together, right? Know your audience. Know their dreams, know their fears, know their passions, know their worldviews. And know what is sacred to them and know their lies. If you know those, you can take the same gospel for all and develop the puzzle in a different way to get to the same picture. Verse 32. Now when they heard about this resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul left the Aragopis, but some people joined him and believed. And among them were Dionysius, who was the member of the Aragopis, a woman named Demarius, and others with him. Once again, some embraced it and some didn't. Many people were like, resurrection of the body. They couldn't get past the temporary non-importance for eternity of the body. The body was just merely to be enjoyed for the moment that it is here, but what happens in the body stays in the body, and then you move on to better things. And for Paul to put such emphasis in that, especially a resurrection, they were just like, that's foolishness, that's dumb. But there were many others who were like, wow, this makes sense. This is logical. I've never heard a philosophical message like this. And I'm willing to place my life and its principles and its ideas. And they begin to believe. And notice that it says one of the members of this council, one of the most highly respected, intelligent councils in all the Greek world, one of its members said, I want to convert. I want to believe. Which I guarantee you, when Paul leaves Athens, who's still going to be there preaching in the Aragapis? Dionysius. You're not going to win everybody. Not everybody is going to accept the gospel. There's something really weird about humans where our brain naturally focuses on and gets stuck on the things that are negative and bad and painful. And, and, and there there's some people who have positive sentiment override where they forget about all the bad things about the past and their family and other people and memories and they just focus on the good because it's easier to focus on the good than to live the pain and remember it. And then all of that goes away and all they can think about is how great the old times were. But a lot of people tend to go more towards the negative sentiment override, where the negative thing that happened to them or the negative thing that was said becomes the focus, and the, all the good things become the distant, foggy memories. This is why bad news gets more ratings and more views. It's why it also takes 10 positive things to overdo a negative thing in your mind. 
And so we tend to focus on the fact of how many people are not coming to the gospel, how many people are not getting it. As a teacher, oh my gosh, sometimes I just want to quit and I'm like, my gosh, I feel like I've just wasted my entire life. How many kids don't seem to get it? But that's not true. And that's why the Bible keeps, these stories keep ending. There were people who scoffed. There are people who beat them. There are people who yelled at them. But there were Jews who came to faith. There were Greeks that came to faith. And not just that. Notice how many times these stories ended with men and women. And prominent and everyday normal people, culturally speaking, came to the faith. No other religion is so robust. Most religions are for the elite only, mystery religions, or they're for the men only. But Luke is very careful and very intentional to say men and women, prominent men and women, and everyday normal men and women, Jews and Gentiles, people who are horribly antagonistic and people who are open. All kinds of people from all different walks of life scoffed, made fun of, and rejected. And also, all kinds of people from all different kinds of life completely embraced the gospel. And that is what no other religion can claim. The only other religion that has come anywhere close to that is Buddhism. But that's post-Christianity. And much of Buddhism feels like a direct plagiarism from Christ and his teachings. This is Paul. Luke is showing that Paul was able to stand on equal footing with the intellectuals of his day, even in Athens. When they scoffed and mocked Paul, they were not scoffing at him because he was not enough of an intellectual or his arguments or debates were weak or pathetic. They were scoffing at the ideas that he was teaching they believed that the ideas that he was teaching about the resurrection of Christ and that this all-powerful, intimate, relational God that was over them, they believed that those ideas were false or pathetic or irrational and ridiculous. It was the ideas that they were scoffing and mocking. They were rejecting the gospel, not that they were saying Paul was pathetic and didn't do a good job. Paul has gone from the deeply religious, sacred life of a minority group of the world, Jews, and successfully preached and won people over. And now he has gone over to the incredibly powerful, influential, affluential, highly intelligized, intellectualized, non-sacred. Nothing is sacred to them except for pagan idolatry and stuff. And he's preached the gospel successfully. Not a lot of philosophies can say that. Not a lot of religions can say that. Not a lot of people are good at that. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. And he boldly and confidently did it and trusted God would take care of him no matter what circle. 